Well, college sports fans are crazy. There's like the nominally crazy college sports fans, like the Baylor Bears over here and the Texas Tech Red Raiders and the TCU Horn Frogs. Have you seen their outfits? They're really terrible, the new ones. Um, Oklahoma State, there's really kind of nominally crazy sports fans in this season especially, and there, there's just certifiably crazy sports fans. Like if you go to, if you're a Boomer Sooner or you're a Longhorn or you're part of the big, is it the Big Ten or is it the big? I don't, I don't know what it is anymore. Ohio State and Michigan, watch it, in Michigan. Um, and then you get to the baddie certified crazy people from the SEC, like the the place down the road here, I won't even name it because other things will come out of your mouth down the road. You can't even do this in a church service without sacrilege, I'm sorry. But then, but then there's deeper, like deep south people. And they are batty certified crazy, like our LSU fans over here and Bama fans and Auburn fans. And so what tends to happen, though, in that is, is they make news. Like the really batty, crazy sports fan, they make the news, and it's not because of football or whatever sport. They make the news like in 2010. In 2010, Auburn plays Alabama in Auburn, and this crazy, psycho sports fan um, from Alabama, Harvey Updike, poisoned, after they lost, he poisoned 130-year-old oak trees on Tumor Street. This is the place where Auburn celebrates their victories and this man spent six months in jail and a million dollars in restitution and then he got death threats because of what he did in the state of Alabama and he moved of all places to Louisiana because they're not going to harm him there for sure. See, some fans have a difficult time wrestling with certain tensions. How can I be faithful and loyal to my team but exist around people with different allegiances? But this tension doesn't just exist in the world of sports, does it? It exists for you and me as followers of Christ. How can I be faithful and loyal to God as a person in his covenant community but live in this broken world that has very different allegiances? Augustine said it this way, how do I live in the city of man when I'm a part of the city of God? This is a tension that we face. How do we respond as believers in Christ to the lost and evil world around us, to the broken, lost, evil world around us? And I'm afraid what happens is this. There are extremes to the way that we respond to the broken world around us. One of those extremes is this. We put on our boxing gloves. I think I've used this before. We put on our boxing gloves with the world around us and we scream and we fight and we use the church just as a clanging cymbal and a banging gong just to yell at the world for all of their evil. But the thing is that the boxing gloves with the world doesn't really present the message of the gospel in a way that people will respond. They will just fight back. This is not the way in which God wants us to engage the world around us. Surely there are times in which we have to engage and we have to speak into the issues of our day as the church. And that is right and that is good, but boxing gloves is not the way. And then the opposite extreme is what? It's to put on latex gloves and insulate ourselves completely from the world. So we want to be contaminated at all by anything in the world, so we just stay away. And surely God calls us to be a set-apart people, doesn't he? But that doesn't mean that we don't engage in the world that we live in. This is what Jesus calls us to do. 
to be in the world but not of the world, and so latex gloves nor boxing gloves work, but that tends to be the way in which we treat the world around us as believers. I wonder what that looks like in your life. I wonder what that looks like in my life. I wonder what that looks like in the life of our church if we take a survey of how we engage with the world. How do I respond to it? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. And we'll start in verse 16. And we're going to go, we're going to take a chunk today, so you're going to have to stay with me. There's a Bible on the end of your row there. If you've got a phone, you can use the Bible there. But you're going to have to keep up with me. And what you're going to see is a couple of alternative ways in which we live in this world, in this broken, evil world. One of them's good and one of them's not so good. And then we're going to see how God responds. And so Genesis chapter 18. So here's what we've been doing in Genesis for the last four weeks. We've been looking at the life of Abraham. And we're in the fourth out of five weeks with Abraham, and then we'll move on, and we'll talk about Jacob and Joseph, and we'll get to the end of the book. But what's happened in the life of Abraham, a man of faith and a man with a lot of faults, as we've seen. So you remember in chapter 12, just a little summary if you haven't been here, in chapter 12, God comes to Abram, and he is an Ur of the Chaldeas, and he is an idol worshiper, he and his family, and God calls Sovereignly calls him by his grace out of what he was doing and where he was at, and he promises him land, seed, and blessing. And then from chapters 12 all the way to where we're at today, he's been re- reiterating that promise where Abraham says, I don't know, God. I don't know. I mean, I don't have a child. I'm older. My wife can't have children. How are you going to make this work? And so what we've been seeing for the last few weeks is God's grace. God's grace in continuing to reiterate this promise that he will have children, that that great nation will happen. And we specifically have honed in to Isaac. But the text today takes a turn. It takes a turn for the next couple of chapters, and we'll come back to Isaac next week. But we take the turn to Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. And so let's look along in chapter 18. Chapter 18, we'll pick it up in verse 16. Here's what's happened at the beginning of chapter 18. Just so you get a little context so you can make sense of a few things we're going to say. At the, end, at the beginning of chapter 18, what happens is, is God not only comes to Abraham in chapter 17 and gives him the sign of the covenant, but in 18, he comes again, but he brings two angels with him. And he comes to Sarah... And what does Sarah do at this promise? She laughs. And then what is the punchline? The punchline is nothing is impossible with God. And so you have God and you have a couple of angels. And then look at verse 16. It says this. Look along with me. I think we'll have some of it up here. I'm going to read. Here's what I'm going to do today because we're covering a lot of text. I'm going to, like I did last week, I'm going to walk through a little bit and I'm going to stop and give you a little information and help you understand what's going on. And then we'll draw truth and application out of it. Sound good? Verse 16, then the men, that's the angels from previous passage, we'll see it again in chapter 19, then these men, these angels set out from there. Where? They were with Sarah and Abraham with the promise and they looked down towards Sodom. So this is a shift in the movie scene. He's shifting for two chapters to Sodom. What do we know about Sodom so far in the book of Genesis? It's shown up before. Do you remember back in chapter 13? In chapter 13, Abraham has a big herd of cattle, big herd of, a big herd of livestock. And his nephew, Lot, also has a growing herd. Why do they have a growing herd? Because God had blessed them. And this is part of the physical blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. And so if you've ever been around cattle or if you've ever been around livestock and you have different herds, you have to separate them. 
And so Abraham, the peacemaker, he says, hey, listen, Lot, nephew Lot, you look around the valley and you decide where you want to take your herd so we don't mix up our herds here. And so Lot looked, the Bible says, he looked and he saw the Jordan Valley sitting down here. And he knew that that would be a place in which he could grow his prosperity, where he could grow his name and he could grow his possessions. It was a fertile land, more fertile than where Abraham ended up. And so there's already a look to his own prosperity. And then the next verse says this, and he pitched his tent near Sodom. And you know what the next phrase says? And the people of Sodom were exceedingly wicked. And so even from the beginning, what you see with Lot is he's looking at what he can get. He's looking at his possessions. He's looking what he can build over here, even though there is corruption all around him. And we're going to see how that whole deal works out for Lot. And so we know Sodom is a wicked place. We know Lot has pitched his tent near Sodom. And then we get to chapter 14 and we see this war because the people of Sodom wanted to rule themselves They wanted to rule themselves, so they're going to try to overtake this king that Chris talked about a few weeks ago, and they don't win. They lose the war. So guess what happens to Lot and the people of Sodom? They lose all their possessions. Even near Sodom, he loses all his possessions, and he gets taken by this other king. And what does Abraham do? He takes the prodigal, his little nephew, and he comes and gets him. He was an ally with this king that had him, and he probably broke his allyship with this king to come and rescue Lot. And so he's, he's Uncle Abraham who is taking care of the prodigal Lot, the nephew. And he comes and he takes him. And he takes him to himself. And you know what the king of Sodom does? Even after he loses, he wants Lot back. You know why he wants Lot back? Because Lot is an important person. Even though he's a person of the covenant promise, he has become a very important and influential person in Sodom. And Abraham says, nope, I'm not doing it. And so Abraham loses some capital with people around to rescue his prodigal nephew, Lot. And so that's what we know so far about Sodom, and that's what we know so far about Lot and where he's at. So Abraham rescues him, but look and see what happens here. Look at verse 20. And the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. The outcry is people who are suffering in the city of injustices, sexual injustices, injustices all through the city. God has heard their cries. So this is a wicked, again, place. And then you come to Abraham's prayer in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards him. But, this is interesting, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Here's the deal. Abraham, Abraham had made enemies, Sodom, he didn't like Sodom. He knew that they were wicked. His nephew was into all kinds of stuff. You know what he could have done? He could have walked away right there. But you see Abraham's compassion. You see his relationship with God is close. He stood before the Lord, but he makes intercession. He prays for his nephew. We don't know in the text yet, but we're going to find out that Lot has come back. And he is in Sodom. Because God... The implication is God's going to deal and judge Sodom. So Abraham prays. Look at the content of this prayer. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
See, God is a righteous God, so Abraham is appealing to the righteousness of God. Suppose there are 50 righteous. You've heard this prayer within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it? And then look it down a little bit in verse 26. Excuse me, 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So he is confident in his praying. He's saying, God, I know you are just. And yet, if there are righteous people in the city, will you not spare them? Will you just put them all in the same camp and judge them all together? He's appealing for his nephew, Lot, who is in the city. But look at what he's also doing. I will spare the whole place for their sake. Not only is he praying for compassion and mercy for his nephew, Lot, who is a part of the covenant community, he is also praying for a wicked city to be saved, to be spared from God's judgment. He has no physical reason to do so. And yet, he's compassionate. In verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? So he's confident, but he's very humble when he comes before the Lord, his friend. And he goes down, persistence, look at the persistence. If there are 40, if there are 30, if there are 20, if there are 10, I will not, and God says, I will not destroy it if there are 10. The question is, were there 10? We'll get to that. So here's what you see in this text. God's people, here's your first point for today. God's people intercede. We pray for the wayward like Lot. We pray for the wicked in the cities of our world. We intercede for the wayward and the wicked. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, yeah, I pray for the wicked, all right. I pray that God will judge the wicked. You know, I pray for the wayward. I pray that they would be exposed for the unbelievers that they are. That's not what Abraham does here. Abraham has compassion and he comes to God and he persistently prays for the wicked in his world, his lost world, and he prays for the wayward You know, I wonder, as I think about this, I wonder about how I pray. I wonder how I pray for the dictator in the third world country that is doing all kinds of evil things. I I wonder how I pray for the politician that I don't agree with. Do I pray for God's mercy or do I pray for God's judgment? How many of you were the wayward? How many of you were the wicked before Christ captured your heart? How many of you were the wayward or the wicked that somebody in your family or in the faith prayed and prayed for you? I had a praying mama. When I was about five years old, she will tell the story now, and she said, this is a strong-willed child, and God is going to have to make this kid go through all kinds of stuff. But she prayed from age five until 20, and God answered her prayer and broke me and came to faith in Christ. Who are you praying, who specifically, C3, who are you praying for that is wayward in your life? Think of somebody in your family. Think of somebody that you know and has claimed the name of Christ and has walked away. Are you praying for those people? Do you still believe that God can answer your pray, prayer and bring them back? What about the wicked? What about the wicked in our world? Do you tend to pray for judgment or do you tend to pray for God's mercy on them? This is the posture of the people of God. People of God intercede for the wayward and the wicked. See, here's the other thing. We talk a lot around here about living a life on mission, that we're missionaries to the world we live in. Listen, we can't 
effectively be missionaries in the world that we live in if our heart posture toward the wicked or toward the wayward is bent toward praying for their demise. You can't be on mission that way. It just doesn't happen. You're praying that God would open people's hearts. This is really a heart check for us and how we see the world and how do we have a missionary heart as God does for his world. You see it here in Sodom. You also see it, remember, in Nineveh. These people were terrorists against the people of God and God wanted Jonah to go and preach to them the truth. How was Jonah? He didn't want to do it, did he? He didn't want to do it. He couldn't imagine that God could save a people as wretched as them. And yet God has saved you and he saved me. Wretched people that we are, like Paul. And so, what do we do? We don't put on latex gloves. We don't put on boxing gloves. We put on work gloves, and we also add some knee pads. And that's what Abraham did here. This is how he was on mission for the Lord, both for the wayward and for the wicked. Well, let's look at Lot, chapter 19. What do we see about him? How does he respond to living in a lost world? Look at Lot. Here's your point with Lot. If your point with Abraham is God's people intercede for the wayward and the wicked, your point with Lot is this. When God's people live in conformity to a corrupt world, it costs them. It costs them. I know it's hard as you read this text and as we're going to get into this text for you and I to look at Lot as I have this week and say, how in the world does the Bible say, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, that he is righteous? He doesn't look righteous at all. See, God has called him out. He's made him positionally righteous, and yet he struggles with righteous living. He's a chameleon. This is what we're going to see about Lot. And let's look at it. In chapter 19, we get to it in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting. Where was he at? He was sitting in the gate. Remember where he was before? He pitched his tent near Sodom, and now and and Abraham rescues him out. And the next time you see him, he's not only in Sodom, but he's in the gate. What do we know in the Bible about the gate of the city? The gate of the city is like Times Square. This is where commerce happens. This is where the haves, the Joneses show up and hang out. He is an influential person in the city if he's hanging out at the gate. So he's gone from near to in to at the gate. This is the nature of sin as we increasingly pursue it. This is what's happening to Lot, and so he's in the gate of Sodom. And then when Lot saw them, he rose and met them. Look at it. And he bowed before his face before the earth and said, My lords. Notice what Abraham said. He said, Lord. He said, My lords. He doesn't even notice that these are messengers of God because he's so lured into the way of the world that he can't even see who they are rightly. My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early in the morning and go on your way. They said, no, we're going to spend the night in the town square. But he passed them strongly, excuse me, he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast of baked unleavened bread and they ate. What is Lot's message to the messengers of God? There's nothing to see here. You see it? If you make unleavened bread... Which one takes longer, unleavened bread or leavened bread? See, unleavened bread rises fast. He wants them to leave the cesspool of what he's living in as a covenant person of God. Nothing to see here. Nothing to tell God here. God already knows, right? 
That's his posture. His posture is nothing to see, y'all. Nothing to see. But look at what happens. Verse 4, and we'll come back to this a little later. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man. So every man in the city surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Maybe your Bible, if you have the NIV, says have sex with them. You see, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says that Adam knew Eve and they conceived and had a son. The word know here is sexual. There's no really way around what's happening in the gates in Sodom. It's one of many things, evils that's happening within Sodom. But this is a homosexual lust. There's no way around that in the text that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance. Notice, he went out. He didn't stay in, he went out. And he shut the door after him. And he, and he said, I beg you, look at the next words, my brothers. Who's he associating with? Who is he calling brothers? He's calling this exceedingly wicked place and city and people in this city his brothers. This is how far he's come in the wrong direction. Do not act so wickedly. So even Lot, the chameleon, notices and would say that this is an evil, wicked act. But notice what he doesn't see as wicked. Verse 8, behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man, that's sexual. Let me bring them out to you. And do to them as you please. That's insane. Only do, not, do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Listen, some commentators, you know what they do with this? They say, hey, this is a big hospitality culture, and so you're supposed to welcome people in. That doesn't cut it. That doesn't cut it here. Here's what's happened to Lot's moral compass. It's been completely shattered. He's a person of the covenant promise, but he's been in the cesspool of Sodom for so long that he doesn't even know right from wrong. That's how deep into the world he has become. I couldn't imagine as a father of daughters, I can't even imagine this. And yet, in our world, we call evil good and good evil as well. We justify our own sin and the sins of the world around us in the same and similar ways This is what happened when the lure of the world takes over our lives. But they said, stand back. And look what happens. They said, this fellow came to sojourn. This is talking about Lot. And he's become, now he's become the judge. So guess what? They turn on him. Lot's trying to be the chameleon and he's trying to live amongst them, but they turn on him because he's not of them. This is exactly what happens in our world when we try to please it and follow it. And he says this, now we will deal worse with you than we did with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, here's where the angels start doing some angel stuff, okay? The men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house where he should have never left with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness. And now you're seeing the the men's real identity come out and who they are, that they are angels with blindness. And these men were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping at the door. I know we have first to fifth graders in here, but this is pretty disgusting stuff. And then what you see from there, if I just summarize, 
the angels start saying, we're going to, effectively, we're going to start, we're going to destroy the city. So you need to get out. You need, Lot, to go to your family, and you need to tell them to get out. You need to go to your son-in-law, you need to go to your daughters, you need to go to your wife and say, get out. Because God is going to judge the city because there are not ten righteous here. That's the angel's report. And what does he do? Notice. He goes to his son-in-law, part of the family, in verse 14. And the son-in-law says, and laughs at him. You know why he laughs at him? Because he's so given in to the way of Sodom himself. He doesn't think the judgment's coming. See also the flood. This is what happened there. And then the angels tell him again to get out. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says that Lot lingered. He kept lingering. This is what the world does. It sinks its claws into us if we let it. And it suction cups into us. And it's really hard to pry us away from the world if we let the world do its work in our lives. This is heavy stuff. He lingered. Don't look back. And then they say, go to the mountains. And he bargains with the angels. And they relent. He's kind of sorry, isn't he? Who <laughs> has to say it? And yet God, in his mercy, is going to rescue him. Listen, he's living in conformity to corruption, and it's going to cost him de deeply. Perhaps you've heard this quote, but I think it rightly puts into perspective Lot's life, and I wonder if we ought to think about it in our own. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. That's the first part. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. He was near Sodom. He was in Sodom. And then he was at the gate. It'll always take you farther than you want to go. And it'll keep you there longer than you want to stay. He lingered. He couldn't get the world off of him. And last, it will cost you more than you ever want to pay. You know what it cost him twice? It cost him his possessions twice. It cost him his nearness with God. He didn't even recognize God and his messengers, which perhaps could be the worst of all. As a, a person, a part of the covenant, he lost his son-in-law. He lost his wife. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you there longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you ever want to pay, C3. And Satan loves this. He loves this. This is what happened with Adam and Eve. He distracts you from God, a God who satisfies, who loves you. He tricks you. He lies to you. He deceives you. He pimps you out. Do you believe the lure of the world is more satisfying than the light and the life that God gives you? And this is what happens. You ever seen a, a deep sea anglerfish? Kids, think of Finding Nemo. Is that too old? Deep sea anglerfish. Remember the scene? It's way down deep. And you know how it lures its prey? It has a little light. It has bacteria on it. it. has this little light. And other fish and other creatures are lured into the light. And you turn the light on to the anglerfish, he looks demonic. Have you seen a picture of an anglerfish? Go look it up on Google. And this is how he takes his prey. This is the same way that Satan works. This is the same way that the world works in our lives. Kids, I want you to think about your friends. 
want you to think about the friends that you have right now. You know why your mom and dad talk to you so much and ask you so many questions about your friends? Because they know that your friends and the people around you and the people you put yourself next to can influence you in all kinds of ways. And I know what you think. You think, well, you know, I can be a witness to someone around me and I can tell them about Jesus, and you should. But if all the people that you surround yourself with, if all the people you surround yourself with are are people that that don't know Jesus, then I promise you they're going to have a bigger effect on you than you will them. William, come up here. I'm going to show, I'm going to demonstrate this. Listen, kids, this is what we're, we're doing. He's an eighth grader. This may be the last time I'm, I'm able to do this. So, William is down here. I'm up here. So, what's easier, kids? What's easier for William to bring me down or for me to pick William up and bring him up to this stage? I'm still a little bit bigger than he is for now. But what's easier? Even though I'm bigger, what's easier? It's easier for him to do what? It's easier for him to pull me down, thanks, than it is for me to pull him up. And this is what happened to Lot. And kids, I want to tell you, you're going to have to think through this as you pick your friends. You pick the people that you're going to surround yourself with. And this is why your mom and dad ask you that question all the time. Because it matters. It matters who you put yourself around. Example of Lot would tell you that. Mom and dad, adults. You ever seen that show, Hoarders? It's fascinating, right? Or something like it where people accumulate things and they keep accumulating things and they won't ever let those things go. And in the end, they lose friends and they lose family and it becomes a really dangerous situation in some homes where there's just junk piled up to ceilings. The people try to navigate it. I know there's a lot going on there, but spiritually speaking, there's not much difference in that and what we do with the things of the world that we accumulate or we want, whether it's prosperity lot, lot, and he's willing to go down into Sodom to get it, and we accumulate it, then we can't even get ourselves out of it. So what are the things, C3, in your life that are like those suction cups, that are like the things of the world that you can't seem to rid yourself of. You need to consider that as you look at the example of Lot. And so, what will we not let go? What are the things and name or pet sins will we not let go? You need to think about the effects that this has on our lives. See, the Bible says this. In the book of Romans, it says, don't be conformed to the image of Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Romans chapter 8, we see Paul saying, be conformed to the image of Christ. So, how does Lot respond to the world? He doesn't have boxing gloves. He doesn't have latex gloves. He has no gloves. He has no gloves. He's just a chameleon that lets all the things of the world affect him and change him. It's an example, sadly, of a wasted life. But what, what is God going to do here? Remember, Abraham has prayed. He's prayed that he would rescue Lot. He's prayed for the city. So what's going to happen? Look at verses 23 through 29. Verse 24 says this, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah after Lot had gotten out and two daughters had gotten out, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. 
So God is a just God. There weren't ten righteous people in Sodom. And so God judges Sodom. And yet, Lot gets out, and God answers Abraham's prayer for Lot, and he gets out of the city. See, God is just, and he's merciful. He's both of those things. He's not more or less of one or the other. He's both of those things at the same time, and that's what we've seen in the book of Genesis. We've seen it at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. We've seen the grace of God, that he allowed them to continue to live, and yet we see God kick them out of the garden. We see the effects and consequences of sin that ultimately lead to death, right? We've seen that with Cain. We've seen that with the flood. We've seen that with the Tower of Babel, both his justice and his mercy. And you know, in the end, that's what we see here. We see his justice and we see his mercy. I want to stop just for a minute because there's kind of an elephant in the room in this text, especially in our culture. When you think about Sodom, this exceedingly wicked city, the Bible says that there is grave sin here. I want to talk about homosexuality for a minute. I want to talk about it biblically, and then I want to talk about it just on a street level, as your pastor, and how we press in, and how we think about it, both with grace and truth. You've got some notes at the bottom of your bulletin there. There's a lot of passages that speak of this. It's undeniable in this passage that this is the sin of homosexual lust. You see it in the book of Leviticus. You see it in the book of Romans. You see it in the book of 1 Thessalonians. You see it in the book of Jude. You see homosexuality being a sin. That it's judged in the Bible as sin. And we as believers in Christ ought to look at that and say we need to take God at his word And yet, like any sin, there's a brokenness to this world, isn't there? There's a brokenness to this world that came in Genesis 3 and not only affects the things that we do, but it affects our desires, ordered or disordered, however you want to play those out. It affects our minds. It affects the way in which we live. So there's a brokenness of sin, and each and every one of us have different sin bents. That's what I would call them. Bents towards certain sins. You know, as a youth pastor, I could look at children at a young age and say, you know what, that kid, that young boy, he's angry. And there may be circumstantial things that cause that anger, but I also could see that anger in his father. And there's stuff there that that boy's going to particularly have to work through where anger would raise its ugly head. I saw other kids who... Struggle with being sneaky. They're just the sneaky kid. You got one? I see mom's looking. Mm -hmm. The sneaky kid, and and, and it's just a bent. It's a bent that you're you're paying attention to and you're looking at. And you know what you do with that? You you call it a struggle. You say, we're going to work through this. The power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to work through this. To walk with young men, fifth, sixth grade boys who are struggling with lust, who's struggling with pornography that's a desire that they have and to walk with them and say hey we're not going to embrace that we're going to call it what it is we're going to call it sin and then we're going to walk together we're going to pray together and we're going to cry together and we're going to walk through this together and for some reason we live in this culture it's a really interesting culture that we live in because this culture and the church by the way shun some sins 
and put them way over here, and then other sins we just fully embrace. And we live in a sexualized culture. The world around us says we need to embrace. If you have a desire sexually in a certain way, rather than struggle with it and fight against it, what you need to do is own it as an identity. Own it is the way in which God made you. And I want to tell you this morning that whether it's anger or lust for the opposite sex or lust for the same sex or confused gender identity, whatever the sin struggle is, we struggle with it. We fight against it through the power of the Holy Spirit. What we don't do with any sin is say, as the Bible identifies it, what we don't do with sin is say, hey, that's just who you are. And you need to live into that identity as who you are. Whether it's gay Christian, here's what we don't do. We don't say, hey, that's an angry Christian as an identity. Hey, that's a lustful Christian. That's a gossipy Christian. That's a gay Christian. See, you're creating identities in which God says are sinful. And so I want to tell you this as a church. As an elder team and as a church, we open wide our doors to any struggler, whatever it is, missing not one, the song we sang, not one, not one sin can God not redeem through the power of the cross, not one, not any disordered desire, not any what some would call a natural sin. By the way, there are natural sexual things that we feel toward the opposite sex, but within that, I can't tell you how many men that I've met with and talked with that have all kinds of disordered, disordered desires within a natural response, okay? And so, as a church, we open our doors to any struggler, anyone who's willing to say, help, anyone who's willing to walk, and we want to be that kind of church that believes, missing not one, that God can redeem anyone in any place And if ever you feel like that's not the case, then come talk to me. I'll deal with it. But that's the kind of church we want to be. But we want to take God at his word and what he says. We want to take God at his word and what he reveals to us is right and wrong. But we want to be a church filled with grace and truth. Both of those things as we walk this kind of path. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That God is a just God and he is a merciful God. And we see that most clearly at the cross. We've said we've seen it at the fall. We've said we've seen it at the Tower of Babel. We've seen it at the flood. We see it here in his justice. But you see, God's justice finds its place, its ultimate place, and his mercy at the cross. Because he takes all the sins, you and me, he takes the wickedness of Sodom that Sodom represented on himself. Jesus does this. He takes the wandering heart and life of Lot. Maybe you're there. He takes your sin struggles and mine, and he bears those sins on a cross for you and for me. Do you know that incredible message? The good news of the gospel. That God can redeem anyone from any place with anything. Do you believe that? And also, are you willing to see others in that light? Are you willing to see that Christ can change a person's life through the gospel wherever they're at? That's the power of the gospel. Do you believe that the gospel is that powerful? That's the message of the cross, his love and mercy and forgiveness and his justice.
But let me close, wrap up with this. You ever go to a Mexican food restaurant or a bar and grill and they offer you free, complimentary, salty snacks? You know, you think that those snacks are just complimentary and they're just being really nice, but you know, they may be. But you know what they're doing? They're setting you up a little bit. They know that a salty snack means that you're going to drink more. You're going to order a drink and more food because salt, salt does what? Salt produces thirst. It creates a thirst. See, believers in Christ are called to be the salt of the earth. And the idea behind that is that the presence, our presence in the world will create spiritual thirst so that we can offer people the living water who is Jesus. Catch that? But we can't do that. We can't create that spiritual thirst in a lost world with boxing gloves. We can't create that spiritual thirst with latex gloves. We can't create that spiritual thirst being the chameleon with no gloves. We have to be like Abraham and create that spiritual thirst on our knees and putting on work gloves to love the world that we live in as Jeremiah 29 describes. Seek the welfare of the city. And so, your application is really short today. Your takeaway is really short. Be salt. See three, be salt that creates spiritual thirst to offer a lost world the living water of Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this word. This is a hard, hard text in the world that we live in, but it is clear. We thank you that you're a God who is just and that you are also a God who is merciful and answers the prayer of your saints. So Lord, I pray for believers in this room that struggle. We all struggle. I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would help us conform to the image of Christ. And Lord, I pray for whatever that sin struggle is, shareable or not, scared or not, to remember that Christ has not missed one, not missed one sin or type of sin, that our sin can be redeemed by the blood of the cross. We thank you that we have that grand of a message to believe and proclaim and live out. Help us be salt in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.